Thank you so much for joining us. We have uh, really, really a great conversation that uh, we just finished with Peter Kirstenau and that we're going to have to pick up again because we simply did not get uh, to the end of it as it pertains to birthright citizenship. But we move onward on this Wednesday now. Halloween morning, the 31st morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 2018. And I want to, uh, uh, again, express, I hope everybody has a very safe and wonderful time with their kids tonight. Again, make sure that they are safe. It's going to be wet out there, too. Make sure they're dry and that they're safe as they head out there for the Halloween festivities. Most uh, most uh, cities and towns are, are, are celebrating this time on the actual Halloween night. Uh, I want to uh, pivot now. And speaking of keeping people safe and speaking of security, I want to pivot now to national security. I want to welcome Ryan Morrow back to the program. Ryan is the chairman of the Clarion Intelligence Network as well as the national security analyst for the Clarion Project online at clarionproject.org. And he's the Shulman Fellow for that organization as well. And we have to talk about security and safety as it pertains to terrorism in the United States. Ryan, good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. It's great to be with you. Ryan, I read an article on clarionproject.org, uh, and uh, I, it just came up uh, last night, actually, that I took a look at it, and I wanted to ask you about it this morning because it was very surprising to me. Uh, research has indicated that support for the terror group al-Qaeda, not ISIS, which kind of had been popularized over the last several years of the Obama administration among uh, some disaffected people in the United States, but support for al-Qaeda, the group that brought us uh, 9-11, the group that brought us so many other terrible terrorist acts, uh, the group that we are still fighting in large part with the Taliban in Afghanistan, even uh, now 16 years after uh, uh, the attacks uh, on 9-11. Support for al-Qaeda is growing in the U.S. inner cities, particularly among disaffected blacks. Um can you give us any insight and analysis, first of all, why blacks in, in inner cities or anybody of any color, quite frankly, uh, would be looking to terror groups to, or looking for terror groups to support? And second of all, why Al-Qaeda is making this resurgence uh, uh, rather than some of the other, uh, you know, the newer terror groups? Sure. So uh, this information came from the sources that we have through Clarion Intelligence Network, and uh, it was actually difficult to write because we had been seeing this happen for quite some time, but most of the stuff that we do, we can't release, um, and so we're struggling and trying to say, well, would people actually believe this if we're releasing it without the specific evidence? And we felt that the, sh- the trend here is strong enough uh, that we could just write an article uh, reporting about this trend happening, uh, and basically what we are seeing is that there is a spike happening, um, particularly among African-American converts, um, many of which have criminal records, uh, to the specific brand of radical Islam that, uh, that finds al-Qaeda appealing. I think that's happening because of really two major reasons. Uh, the first being that al-Qaeda seems to have a stronger theological argument, especially now, uh, than ISIS. And so what we're seeing is, is that there's this renewed admiration for Osama bin Laden uh, as a leader who for a long time was able to in their minds, be protected by Allah from the United States. Um, and there's a special interest in Anwar al-Waki, the American member of al-Qaeda, uh, who was killed in a drone strike in Yemen. That's just because his preaching and his uh, YouTube videos that were out there, uh, it's very common to see just a quick like one or two minute snippet of it, and that gets spread around very easily. You can you can put um, pithy quotes into a soundbite for him, and ISIS doesn't have anything that compares with that. Uh, the second reason is because ISIS is so 
connected to the idea of controlling territory. They declared a caliphate. They took over territory very rapidly, uh, and now it's gone. And how do you, as an ISIS supporter, reconcile that with the belief that Allah grants victory to those that best follow his will? I mean, it makes it very difficult uh, when the U.S. is beating you up to the point that we are beating up ISIS. And so uh, al-Qaeda is gaining more traction because they are seen as more successful, and they're seeing uh, being seen as more coming more moderate, actually, and more on the rise, particularly in places like the Philippines, Yemen, and Syria. Um, Ryan, you said that uh, people like Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, you know, the snippets and the sound bites uh, that they can play uh, can appeal to some of these could be would be radicalized people and and obviously i don't have the right mind for this because i'm looking at all right here's sound bites this is what this guy is saying which for whatever reason might be appealing to me in my mind but then i also have eyes and ears and i can read and see and and listen to the fact that he was killed uh is this really a guy that uh you know whose whose message i want to follow i got his message over here which is appealing and then i see what happens when you carry out actions based on those messages you die i would think that would turn somebody quickly away from the notion of maybe i want to join this organization they're getting killed for what they do and what they say and what they believe and what they're carrying out and so on and so forth so yeah i think i can find another way to express myself rather than joining a group in which i'm almost certain to be killed sure well in the mind of a supporter of al-Qaeda or that broader Wahhabist ideology, what they would say is, is that Allah obviously was protecting Anwar al-Laki for a long period of time because of how successful he was. I mean, he gave birth to basically an entire generation of jihadists, um, and his sermons appear to be more popular than that of Osama bin Laden, even though he wasn't the top guy. Um, and the fact that he died was almost a gift. I mean, that's how you get your entry into paradise. Um, and so there seems to be a difference between someone who just joins a group, um, wants to become a jihadist, and then gets killed in the process uh, because they haven't been blessed by Allah in the minds of the jihadists, and because they are incompetent. Um, and versus someone who does the job that they intend to do for a long time, uh, no one can really understand why they're able to do so safely for a long time, and then they ultimately get what they've always wanted, which is, dying uh there's all, all, all ryan if i may all of that i get as far as as you said you know people who believe in in you know the, the wahhabis and 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 other you know uh, islamics who are uh, is muslims who maybe become radicalized they understand allah they understand all of the things they understand you know dying for allah they understand martyrdom and so on and so forth but these kids in these inner cities i didn't think you know would have that automatic have that background to 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 create that automatic impression in their heads that well you know Allah kept Alaki alive for a long time to do all of these things and he only died you know gloriously after you know achieving all of these things I can see somebody raised in the Muslim faith especially by extremists getting that feeling that way but again how does that hit a kid on the streets of Detroit or or Cleveland or Oakland or anywhere else because we are talking about American inner cities here that's what the uh, Clarion story is about I, I they don't have that background to understand that and that belief about Allah martyrdom etc sure well it usually happens uh, because of a, a feeling of a disconnect with the American identity and the American government and even though al-qaeda hasn't really put a lot of references into bashing the man calling for a revolution against the police and calling for a revolution against the court system and saying that the 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 place in which you live the united states 
um, has caused all of your problems from poverty to the criminal record that you or, or your family may be suffering from, uh, just the fact that they are an alternative, the civilizational alternative to the United States, um, puts all kind of good position to recruit just a tiny portion, which is all that they need. So the more someone is absorbed in anti-American um, scapegoating, the more they're going to look to other alternatives, and one of those alternatives is going to be al-Qaeda. Um, and one of the concerns I have, um, and I think that eventually a smart jihadist group is going to come along and do this, what are you going to do when there's a new in-vogue jihadist group that comes along that does focus on hating the police, speaking to these grievances, and uses Marxist rhetoric and more restrained strategies rather than al-Qaeda, you know, combining the pragmatism of the Muslim Brotherhood with the Marxist rhetoric uh, that is popular, and you put those two things together and you have the ingredients there for an intelligent jihadist group to come along and, in my opinion, be far more powerful than al-Qaeda and ISIS ever have been, because a lot of this is about messaging. By the way, I just threw some cities out there, and I probably shouldn't have. I said Detroit, Cleveland, and Oakland just off the cuff. The actual article includes New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, <laughs> as well as some heavily populated areas of, of California and Texas. So I didn't even get one of them right. Um, last thing about this, uh, uh, Ryan, um, can you speak to the nation of Islam? Um, you know, as, as most people know, you know who Louis Farrakhan is, uh, and what the Nation of Islam has been all about. It, it specifically appeals to African Americans. Um, they they are not directly related to you know the Islam that you and I discuss on a regular basis, um, but it does recruit African Americans. It's what uh, turned Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. Uh, it's what turned Lou Alcindor to uh, to um, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. And these are just pop, you know, famous people. But uh, it, it, can you explain the 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 connection, or if there is any at all, w- between the nation of Islam, which does seem to be prevalent in black recruitment to Islam, and compare that to the Islamic uh, faith that we, you know, kind of have come to know uh, with respect to the Muslim Brotherhood and organizations like that? Sure. So, nation of Islam is much more focused on. Race. I've seen them. You know, they preach that the uh, Black American population should have their own country, um, and all sorts of other uh, weird beliefs. Some of which I, I can't recall at the moment because they're so weird. Um, and here's the big takeaway from Nation of Islam for me: if you look at how successful they are, uh, and they are having so many members and having. Uh, be whining and dining essentially with uh, the Democratic Party leadership. You yeah. look at all that success, consider the fact that the vast, vast majority of even Islamic extremists consider them to be weird and cultish. That shows you the power of Nation of Islam type messaging, which groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS have yet to adopt. Uh, so if you do have a group that comes along and says, what did Nation of Islam do that do correctly to build? that support structure, uh, and how do we marry that with more conventional jihadist beliefs, then you're going to have a major, major problem on your hands. And in my monitoring of people, I see that a lot of radical, a lot of people are radicalized by Nation of Islam, initially join them, uh, but then see some of their more unconventional radical Islamic beliefs, and then they move over to something that has more of a 
mainstream Islamic founding, um, and they get involved in the Saudi-type um, or organizations and those types of beliefs. Yeah, that that's that's where I was going with that. I'm just wondering how disaffected blacks in inner cities, as your reporting and studying uh, studies have shown, you know, are turning more toward Al Qaeda. Why they're not turning more toward the traditional, um, you know, if they are wanting to convert to Islam in some way, the, uh, the you know, the traditional black model of it, uh, as as it pertains to the nation of Islam, but they're not going. Yeah, they into usually that do dabble in it. Um, yeah. They usually, so you'll see that they ultimately will choose one of these more mainstream jihadist groups. But even those guys, most of them, um, maybe maybe like a slight majority of them, I would say, you'll see on their Facebook accounts and things like that that they are sharing particular sermons by uh, Farrakhan um, and, and certain Nation of Islam type products that solidify their argument simply because the messaging works so well. The other element to this in terms of messaging that people have to understand is that they're not always gravitating towards this ideology because of the jihadist message. Like Anwar Awlaki, I think the most popular video I see from him that get people interested in him is this pretty articulate rebuttal of atheism that I came across once, uh, and I just listened to it, and I didn't know it was Anwar Awlaki, and I said, wow, that was a pretty strong video, and I pulled up, and it was I was listening to Anwar Awlaki. I didn't even know it. Um, and so they come across these radical Islamic preachers for messages that are not radical. And the relationship and trust in that preacher is first built that way in many of, the, in many of these cases. And then the radicalism then is slipped in covertly. Yeah, then the radicalism is kind of added in covertly, little by little by little, and uh, in, until it kind of creeps into the, the sub, from the subconscious to the consciousness, and now they're already bought in. Uh, that, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, I did you use the word cultish? Because it sounds exactly how cult leaders eventually, uh, you know, convert their, and I don't know if you use that or not. I don't want to put that in your mouth, but uh, I, I'd read it or heard it. Sure. But, it, but it does kind of operate the same way. Uh, Ryan, we got to run there. Really great conversation with you, as always. Great piece. On- EDU. President of the United States visited Pittsburgh yesterday, and it was exactly the right thing to do. Some local officials thought the president should have waited until after funerals are held for all of the 11 people killed at the Tree of Life synagogue. But White House spokeswoman Sarah Sanders said the president wanted to show his respect on behalf of the entire country and to represent the country in this moment and be there to show our support. The president and first lady also visited with a widow and several law enforcement officials injured in the attack who remain hospitalized. The president hitting the road late this afternoon for a campaign campaign rally near Fort Myers, Florida. What I would like to ask, the reason I played that is I would like to ask, what do you think the protesters and the Trump haters, which means essentially the entire media, would have said had he not gone to Pittsburgh yesterday? What would they have said if he had waited until next week sometime after the election? You know what they would have said. He didn't care enough to go and mourn with the victims in Pittsburgh because all he wanted to do was campaign. It's all about personal power for Donald Trump. It's all about personal uh, it's, it's all about his own personal needs. It's his own narcissism. He had to go do rallies. He had time to do rallies all over the, the country next week or the rest of this week and uh, early part of next week before the election, but he couldn't come to Pittsburgh and pay respect to the dead. That's what they would have said. The president gave them a few days because he couldn't go there that early. It was so raw. He did not want to go after the fact, after all of the funerals had been done. Then he would have just looked like he was photo-opping. He showed up in the middle of it all. 
It was exactly the right thing to do. And the Trump haters are always going to find reasons to Trump hate. Rob Walgate joins us next on AM 1420. Answer. Always happy Halloween to you. Hopefully you have a nice plan for the uh, day today. Whatever you are, if you're over the age of, uh, I don't know, 15 maybe. Unless there's something for your school. If the high school is doing a, uh, you know, a, you know, a Halloween type thing, that's okay. But if what I'm trying to say is if you're an adult, please do not dress up for Halloween. It is a child's holiday. You provide candy, not costumes for yourselves. Please. That is one of my biggest pet peeves is seeing adults going to costume parties. Uh, all right. Let's get right back to the business at hand. Our friend Rob Walgate joins us now. Rob, of course, is with iVoters.com. He is uh, also with uh, the Public Square Media Network, as well as AP Roundtable and the Ohio Roundtable. And uh, a little birdie tells me he's dressing up for Halloween. Hey, Rob, how are you? <laughs> Good morning, Bob. And there is no candy Believe it or not, no candy distributed at the Walgate household. We hand out something else for Halloween. What do you hand out? Voter guides? I hand out cans of Mountain Dew. And the reason I do that is I figure there's enough sugar. They need a little caffeine to wash it down. So, um, <laughs> And if you come to my house and you're over the age of six or seven, and you tell me you're not permitted to have Mountain Dew, you leave with two cans of Mountain Dew. So... Um, so uh, my my wife thinks it's ridiculous, and she leaves and and can't be around it because she's embarrassed. Wow, that is hilarious. That that's even better than what I joked about. I thought you would hand out voter guides for myvoters.com, dot oh, well, a little little pocket guide, tell everybody this is these are the candidates and this is what you can look for. We, we, we may slide some of that in there. <laughs> All right, hey Rob, let's. Um, uh, there's a number of things I do want to talk to you about, but obviously the most important one is issue one. I know you spoke uh, to the Medina County Friends and Neighbors Organization in Valley City on Saturday about issue one, and uh, and, and I want to be clear. <clears throat> So that everybody understands this, um, iVoters.com, you know, cause your, your, your friend and colleague, uh, and founder, uh, Dave Zanotti, uh, if I have all his titles correct, um, is running a spot, uh, that we air in which he talks about, you know, issue one and about how it is a misguided, mis, uh, you know, very poorly written, uh, constitutional amendment. And, uh, yet he also speaks about iVoters and iVoters.com does not take a position on these things. iVoters.com simply says this is what is, you know, the proponents of issue one say. And this is what the opponents of issue one say, and you can make up your own mind. So, and that's probably a little tight rope for you to walk because you personally oppose issue one, and yet you represent I voters in which you do not give a, they do not make a stand like that. So, can you it speak is, to that? It is it, yes. As vice president of the American Policy Roundtable, we're a five hundred one c three organization, and we can't take positions on issues. And we have, and I've written an op ed against issue one. I've been invited numerous places to speak. I'll be taking part in a panel forum slash debate this Thursday night in University Heights on issue one. But the one thing that we do promote and talk about most is iVoters.com. And as you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the country that visit that nonpartisan website. And when folks go to iVoters.com, they get the yes and no arguments. They get the full text of the amendment. We do not tell people how to vote or what to do when they step into the voting booth. We want to provide them with both sides because we feel that everything works best when people can do the homework and be educated for themselves. And if they have questions, feel free to ask them. But we want to make sure people have both sides and the truth because when you watch the campaign commercials, I don't think that you're getting a lot of that. So at iVoters.com, you get the exact constitutional language, you get the yes arguments, and you get the no arguments, and you can make up your mind for yourself. 
And that's good. And that's good. And I'm glad to get that clarification. So, so is the AP roundtable, certainly, uh, you know, 501c3, that there's one, you know, uh, uh, set of standards you have to follow. iVoters.com does as well. But you can personally make your argument as Dave does in his spot that we are running against issue one because it is very dangerous for Ohio. And so speaking from that, that platform, let's cover some of the bases again. You know, I've been, I, I've read on the air, the full article written by Ohio Chief uh, uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen mm-hmm. O'Connor, uh, which is very, very specific about a lot of these things. And then I've also simplified it and, and used the statement made by the, uh, the Coroner's Association in the state of Ohio, which is that issue one will empty Ohio's prisons and fill its morgues. Uh, and, and, you know, they're two different approaches. One is more detailed and one is very, very simple, but I think they're both very accurate. Why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch as to why it's so important to defeat this issue in Ohio, Rob? Well, I think it's deceptive. And when you talk about, and you look at the title, the Neighborhood Safety Act, and the things that they talk about, when you read the exact language in the text of the amendment, they're talking about reducing prison populations. But they talk about it in their talking points and in their commercials regarding for drug use, which some people may look at and say, yeah, yeah, we do have a problem. We need treatment. However, when you dive into the details of the amendment, anyone that's in prison for anything other than rape, murder, and child molestation, and there's a lot of argument and debate about what the definition in law of child molestation means and what those crimes mean. But just think about that. Rape, murder, child molestation, people can cut their sentences for any other crime, human trafficking, assault. Think of anything you want other than those three. People have the ability to cut their sentences by 25% for any other crime other than those three. Are they telling you that in the commercial? Do they talk about that? And this is constitutional language that can only be changed if it was to pass by another vote of the people. This has no business being in the Ohio Constitution, none whatsoever. And the people that did this know that. And the reason they did it, this was somewhat of a stealth campaign, Bob. Had you even heard about this until like the middle or end of July? When signatures no, are being no, turned in? No, no you're right. No that's why. That's when everybody became aware of it. As a matter of fact, I yeah. think you reached out to me the first time and said, Bob, we need to talk about issue one. And I said, what's issue one? And away we went. Yeah. So you're right. It was well, in the summer. And here's the thing. I mean, I go to a lot of different things, whether it's the West Side Market or downtown sporting events or museums. There's so many places, as I'm sure you and all your listeners do. I get approached a lot to sign things, petitions, things people want on the ballot. I think people regret approaching me when they do, not because I say no, but because I ask questions. And if you want my signature on something, you better darn well know what it is you're talking about and want my signature for. So most of the time, people just walk away from me frustrated because they can't answer the questions. But I was not asked one time to sign a petition to get issue one on the ballot. And that amazes me that they were able to get so many hundreds of thousands of signatures across the state in 40-some-odd counties. And I've talked to a number of people, and no one signed their petition. It was a stealth strategic campaign underneath the radar, and they wanted to come out and fight in a short field in the last 90 or 120 days, and that's what they've done. Rob Walgate is our guest from iVoters.com, from, uh, from the AP Roundtable, Ohio Roundtable, and yes, iVote, or excuse me, and also the Public Square Media Network. I always have to, uh, uh, give some love to the Public Square. You guys do great work, and you also provide us with some great holiday programming, uh, from time to time, and I look forward to that this Christmas as well. Um, Rob, so a couple of other things, uh, that, that we should talk about. Um, and, and, and in fact, if you want to just kind of go generally on the midterm elections and give me your thoughts, uh, again, if you want to plug iVoters and all of the backgrounds and 
and the records and uh, policy standpoints yeah. of, of the candidates uh, for all of the uh, races locally, statewide, and nationally. All of that stuff is at iVoters.com. It is, and there's a few things we're looking at across the country as we study this heading into Election Day. One of the things I wanted to hit on, Bob, if I could, was the polling that's been done. Sure. And polling usually frustrates me. I always say the only poll that matters is the one that's taken on November 6th. <laughs> that's the one that matters. And when you dive it, when you hear a poll, when your listeners hear a poll, I encourage them to do a little more research, to go in and say, oh, who did that poll and what questions did they ask? I'll give you two examples. One was a Baldwin-Wallace poll that was released earlier this week that talks about the races being closer than what they are. So I wanted to dive in, see what questions are asked, who they asked. It was an online poll. Personally, I'm not a fan of online polls. I don't think they cover as much ground or people are as transparent and honest as telephone polls. But the one thing that jumped out at me when I looked at the numbers, when I looked at the numbers, the raw and weighted numbers for annual household income, they had a weighted number of roughly 32.1%. That's almost one-third of the poll come from households that have an income of less than $25,000. Now, this poll was touted as being an accurate snapshot of everyone around the state. Well, that's not an accurate snapshot of who's going to be voting on Election Day when I dive into the raw numbers of the poll versus the weighted numbers of the poll. So I think you have to take that and balance it all that. I don't think that's a fair description. But all people see are the headlines of the poll. The other example I'll give to show a flaw was in the state of Tennessee. I know a lot of people are following the Phil Bredesen, Marsha Blackburn race. There's sure, a lot of sure. talk about it. Well, get this. Bob, they polled 800 people via telephone. Vanderbilt University, 800 people via telephone. They made over 21,000 phone calls to get 800 people to respond. That's a lot, is it not? Over 21,000 phone calls to get 800 to respond. Yeah, then, they asked, then they asked the question, who would you support for United States Senate? And they rotated your options, one time Bredesen first, the next time Blackburn first. But they only told 400 of those people answering the question, half the respondents, which party each person belonged to, the Republican uh-huh. or Democrat Party. Now, that makes an impact on what people are going to do on Election Day. I'm not saying your decision solely should be based on whether an RD is next to someone's name. However, when we step into the voting booth, we're given that information. So if you're confused or don't know on the poll, that poll had the race within one point. Every other poll has it seven to ten points. But people ran with the fact Vanderbilt has a new poll out. It has the race within one point. The race isn't within one point. Maybe it is, but that poll doesn't identify it was because it's an inaccurate poll. That's a frustrating thing that's happened all across the country. However, when these polls are put out, the whoever does them gets their name out there. They get a lot of talk. So the closer the poll is, the more publicity these folks are getting. And it is frustrating. So when you see a poll, dive into the question, dive into who they ask, dive into why they asked. That's a very, very good point, and a couple of great examples as well. And it's perhaps one of the reasons that you know we have what we have right now, uh, you know, which is the surprise president of the United States. All of the polls, perhaps because of some of the same methodology that you're talking about, that said Hillary Clinton in a walk back in November two years ago, uh, you know, proved to be wrong. So you're right; it really yeah, only well, matters. The only poll that matters is on election night. And as we move towards Election Day, I know here we're hearing a lot of talk from states about who has already come out and voted. Is it a red wave or a blue wave or maybe even a tsunami? What's going on? They're looking at numbers based upon how people are registered to vote. And around the country, there's different methodologies on which party alignment you're with. So say they have, 
Well, there's 8% more Democrats voting right now than Republicans. Say they use that number. That doesn't mean anything because that person, number one, is not committed to vote for a Democrat. Number two, that may be from a primary affiliation they voted in 12 years ago, and they haven't voted in a primary since, but they voted in every general. But that Democrat tag has stuck with them because that was the last time they affiliated with a party, and they've never done anything to change it. So depending on what state you're in, it depends how your party alignment is done and how you would be affiliated. That matters and makes a difference. So when you hear all these things about, well, there's 8% more, 6% more of this party that's voted, that, that means nothing. That means nothing because no one's obligated. It's not like a primary where you only have your party to vote for when you step into the voting booth. You can vote any way you want. So I think there's a lot of speculation, and there could be surprise. As you mentioned, there was much surprise in 2016 for people that tried to overanalyze those numbers. Rob, Rob Walgate is our guest. Rob, let's talk also about the caravan, uh, not on, on policy and about what it means as far as illegal immigration in general, but you've got some thoughts on this as it relates to congressional representation and the Electoral College. The more people that pour into the country by the thousands, if they congregate in, in one particular state or in a small number of states, it can tip the balance because of representation of uh of of the population in our congress so give me your thoughts on yes that. well as your listeners know every 10 year a census is done and that determines congressional representation based upon population that's why in ohio we've lost some seats through the years some places like florida texas california have gained seats because their population has grown and notice the word i'm using population i'm not using the word citizen because congressional representation and the amount of votes you have in the Electoral College are based on your population, not on your citizens. So in essence, states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan are losing Indiana representation in the Congress and losing more of a weighted say for who the President of the United States would be because the population, the illegal population, people that are not citizens are settling in those other states, but they are still counted in the census for congressional representation. That is something that I think needs addressed. That is something that people need to talk about. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that issue and that problem that America is facing. No, you're right. They don't. They 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 think it's just citizens. But you're exactly right, which is why that census. You know, it's so important that for that census question to be asked. Uh, that you know, the left has been pushing to stop, and that is, are you a citizen? They're afraid that people won't identify themselves as a uh, as an illegal alien because then they, you know it's going to draw attention to themselves for deportation proceedings and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, we need to know who is here as a legal citizen, legal resident, or a citizen for the purposes of rep- representation, and which ones are illegal because we cannot we. Can't cannot apportion we cannot in my view we cannot apportion representation in the congress to people who don't belong here anyway i i agree with you and i think there's going to be a lot of discussion about that we know that the house is going to go it, it, it's going to be close there's no doubt it's going to be close to the 435 seats in the house on who has control of the house but one thing i'll encourage you to watch and i'll ask your listeners to keep an eye on is the state of pennsylvania there's been a lot of states around the country that have had a problem with the way districts were drawn. So the state of Pennsylvania, the League of Women Voters, brought forth a lawsuit, and they took it to the Supreme Court. Now, the state of Pennsylvania had a 13-5 to 5 advantage for Republicans in Congress. Well, that was changed to 12-6 when Connor Lamb won a special election. 
uh, earlier this year in the spring. So 12-6 Republican advantage. Well, the Supreme Court took up the redistricting case, Bob, and if the Democrat Supreme Court, they totally redrew the line. I know you'll find this as a surprise, but those lines now benefit the Democrats. So they complained about being partisan drawn lines, and then they turned around and did the exact same thing. Um, and now it looks like on Election Day it could be anywhere from you know, 10-8 to the Democrats to maybe 11-7 to the Republicans. It's going to swing in that area somewhere. It's going to be watched closely. But if it's a difference of one or two votes or one or two members of Congress that give balance, even if it gives balance to the Democrats, look no further than the state of Pennsylvania and the Democrat Supreme Court that redrew those lines to tip the balance. And it tipped the balance for all of us because it may impact the majority in the House of Representatives. Yeah, shockingly, as you said, that it favored the Democrats. And you're right, by the way, both parties do it. I claim no halo over my head as a Republican oh, or as a Republican yeah, supporter for, for that kind of drawing, district drawing and gerrymandering. I absolutely do not uh, support it in any way, shape, or form. But you're right. That is exactly what they're doing on the other side while they complain. So the hypocrisy is very, very thick. Rob Walgate, uh, great stuff. Thank you. Hey. Short segment to wrap up the program today. A reminder, however, once we are done, you can stay in touch with me. Follow me on social media. As much as I abhor Twitter, I do use it to stay in touch with you and also to fight back against the nonstop propaganda attacks of the uh, the Democrat Party. But uh, Twitter, you can find me. Facebook, you can find me as well. France Radio, F-R-A-N-T-Z. Radio, all one word, no space, no underscores. France Radio. Also, good news is when we're done here in just a few, Mike Gallagher will take over, and then Prager, and then Medved, then Medved rather, and then Jay Seculo, and then Larry Elder, and then I will not promote the next show after that because he is an uh, he is uh, an anti-Trumper. I won't say he was a never Trumper, but he is an anti-Trumper, and until he stops he joining the rest of the mainstream media and constantly criticizing the president. I'm not going to promote his show. Sorry. Esther is in Cleveland. You're on AM 1420, The Answer. Esther, go ahead. Thanks. I think the framers of the Constitution might have been aware of the term subject of the crown being under the power and jurisdiction or authority of another. Uh, Mark Levin, in his book, The Men in Black, referred to issues of citizenship and all kinds of other issues, and he was talking about illegals being determined improperly to be persons, and a multitude of changes over time regarding how illegals were were uh, handled. I did not read that, but uh, but he's right on based on what you're describing right now, and also your 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 description of uh, of being subject to subject to a foreign power. The eight, the you know the the Fourteenth Amendment was written in large part kind of on the back of or to follow up. Um, uh, the, the Foreign Power Act, or, or Foreign Power Designation, rather, from 1866, when this thing was, uh, you know, when they first started doing this. Uh, it didn't get passed, of course, until 18, it wasn't written into the Constitution until 1868. But it was written, the, the part about under the jurisdiction of was under the, uh, or subject to a foreign power. It was a great piece that I received, uh, early to, I'm gonna let you go there, Esther, so I can hit this before we're done. But there's a great piece that was sent to me by, by my friend, uh, Dan Ramada. From uh, Act for America at Cleveland, the uh, the uh, Cleveland and Ohio chapter of Act for America, but there was a great piece uh, about this that was written by uh, John Eastman, uh, discussing the 1866 Civil Rights Act, which grants citizenship to all persons born in the United States, not subject to any foreign power. That was the basis of the Fourteenth Amendment, which passed in 1868. The exact basis of that. 
You are granted citizenship if you're born in the United States and not subject to a foreign power or uh, uh, under the jurisdiction thereof. It's just really that simple. So yes, the president can indeed end birthright citizenship for illegal immigrants in the United States without totally repealing the 14th Amendment. All right, that's it. That's all the time I've got. Thanks to Peter Kersenow. Thanks to uh, Ryan Morrow. And thanks to Rob Ballgate. And thanks to you. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Enjoy the silence.